It's great to be with you here this morning in Goodlitzville, Tennessee. That's where I am, right? And uh, so honored to be here today. God bless you for coming this morning, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm honored I could be here. I'm sorry my wife is not with me. She's down in Franklin, Tennessee, and we're members of the Clearview Baptist Church near our house, and she teaches fifth grade Sunday school and also sings in the choir, and so that's where Dale is uh, this morning. I look forward to being back with her right after lunch and uh, spending Sunday with her. That's not often that I do that. I preach somewhere around the nation every Sunday, and uh, actually had a Sunday off, two Sundays off when I had knee surgery in 2013. That was the last time. <clears throat> and she, we were having dinner last night. She, I was telling her I had some openings in January that had not yet been filled. And are you going to get to come to my church? I said it's our church. But anyway, uh, I'm honored to be with you today, and thank you, Pastor, for letting me come and, and inviting me to come here this morning. It's my honor to be here. Uh, I want to say uh, God bless you for your partnership in the gospel work. I know this is a season of concentrating on Christmas, but as we've already heard, it's a great opportunity to give unto the Lord, to minister to people and help in many ways. I know you're about to begin focusing on giving the international missions through the Lighting Moon Christmas offering, and we need that to be the greatest offering in the history of our convention. We need uh, to send more missionaries, not bring missionaries home. And so I'm inviting you to do like the pages are going to do and give more than we've ever given before in our lives till it hurts. And we've committed to do that because we want to see more go to see the people of this world hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I encourage you in that. But I want to tell you real quickly that in my job with that long pompous title that I have, I do get to see, I get a front row seat to see where uh, that money is going and what's happening. Let me just give you a couple of examples. My wife does not always travel with me, but when I go to nice places like Germany, Spain, New York City, she feels led to go. She's deeply spiritual. <clears throat> but we were in Germany just in September, and I'm telling you, God's doing a great work there with a group of people really called Russian Germans. There are about five to six million in that particular people group. And there are about eight churches in that group that are over a thousand. And in Germany, that is, in Europe, that's unheard of. But there's a seminary there that's, that's the only conservative, biblical conservative seminary in all of Europe. And it's pumping out pastors and missionaries that you'd be proud of. And guess what? You have a hand in that through supporting and being a part of God's work through the cooperative program and through Lottie Moon. Then in June, we were in Spain. She, she felt led to go with me in Spain, too. I preached at the Primera Iglesia Bautista de Madrid, España, the First Baptist Church of Madrid, and spoke at a seminary graduation the day before. God is doing a great work in that country. And guess who helped support that work? You do. Last December, I was in Cuba. Now, she did not feel led to go on that trip, I will tell you. I was a little rougher trip, but I had one of the greatest times of my life as I saw a revival of biblical proportions occurring. See, communism thought it could shut down Christianity years ago. And one of the ways it attempted to do so was by saying you can never build a church building. The Cubans said, okay, we'll just start churches in our homes. And they are now all across east to west, 
thousands of house churches all over the island of Cuba. I'm telling you, thousands of people are coming to Christ. I, I was shocked. I was, I was deeply humbled and impressed. We've got some missionaries. They're not allowed to live there, but they fly in every week from Miami. <clears throat> Guess who helped support that work? You do. So I could just go on and on. I've got stories from all over the world and all over this continent. See, in this last month, in the last two months, I have spoken in Bakersfield, California, Portland, Oregon. I have been in the east. I have been in the west. I've been in Des Moines, Detroit. I've been in Kansas City. I have been in Kentucky. I have been in Tennessee. I've been in South Carolina, North Carolina. I've been in Florida. You name it. God's up to doing something great. And I wanted just to say thank you for your partnership in the gospel work. And I just want to say you are a part of that. So I hope you're encouraged by that. Well, I'm here today to not only just say thank you. I'm here today not only to encourage your pastor. I'm here today to encourage you, but also just to say uh, God bless you for sharing Christ out in this area that is in so much need of the gospel. That is so desperately needed. Well, I also came here today to preach the Word of God. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. To one of my favorite passages in all the Word of God. Now, you don't laugh at that because you don't know me, but I get laughed at a lot of times by saying that because I say that about every passage every Sunday, actually. Actually, I put on Facebook and Twitter, whatever that is, a favorite verse of the day. I get one. I at least have one or two every day because God's Word is so precious and powerful, and I'm grateful for it. It's changed my life. As a recent article came out uh, in uh, SBC Life, I think is what it's called. I'm sure the pastor got a copy. He's already read it cover to cover. But anyway, it is, it's an article about my ministry, and I didn't ask to have it written, but one of the things it talked about in the beginning was I was not raised in a Christian home. I was not raised in a happy home. And uh, maybe that was the reason that when I first went to hear the gospel, it captured me beyond words because I needed an anchor. And that anchor was the Word of God in a gospel-preaching church. And it changed my life, changed my family later on as well. And I thank God for that. So turn to my favorite passage in Philippians chapter 1. But I begin with a story. A story about a missionary couple that lived in Brazil. Now, I've been to Brazil several times. It's hot. It's hot in the wintertime. It's hotter in the summertime. And this family lived on a river that is a tributary to the uh, Amazon. And the name of this river, how about this, is the Parana River. Now, I've not been on the Parana River, but I've been on the Amazon many times, and it is quite a river. Well, the Parana River was a place there that where this missionary couple lived, and they actually worked in a Christian camp that ministered to the villages all around. And it was just so hot, the missionary wife writes the story, and she tells about her husband, who was so hot every day, he just wanted to get in the river and swim. But he was afraid because, I mean, what's the name of the river? Piranha. And it would get up sometimes close to 120 degrees, and he was just sweltering. Of course, no air conditioning. He wanted to get in the water. He did talk to a group of local fishermen one time, and they said, you know, you, that's not a problem. You, they, you know, piranhas are not going to bother you here. Well, why not? Well, the piranha only attack when they're in schools. And they're never 
found in schools or groups here in this part of the Piranha River. So you don't need to worry about the piranha. He thought, well, okay. So every afternoon he'd just jump in the river, swim for a while, cool off. It was just great. He did this day after day until finally he was in the village one day and he heard of a local fisherman who had gone missing. So he convened the local leaders again. He said, now wait a minute. I've just heard of a local fisherman who's gone missing and I'm worried now. I've been out there swimming in that river every day. You told me I didn't have to worry about the piranha. They said, that's right. The piranha never attack unless they're in schools and they never swim in schools or groups here in this area. He asked something he should have asked before. He said, well, may I ask why? They said, because they're afraid of the crocodiles. Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, I know as a pastor of over 30 years, I know a lot of people that see life as a choice between the piranhas and the crocodiles. Life and death, it's bad or worse. I don't want to live, but I don't want to die. Because one is bad and the other just gets worse. Is life and death a choice between the piranha and the crocodile? I don't think so. Paul didn't think so. And I want us to see really what is at the heart of our gospel message. I want us to see what is at the heart of our Christmas message. I want us to see what's the heart of our mission impulse as Baptists. I want you to look there with me to Philippians chapter 1. Begin with my favorite passage, which is in 21, down through 26. Do you see it? It says simply this. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Uh, The old King James says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your advancement and joy in the faith. So that, now look at verse 26. So that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Oh, my friends, there are many people who struggle with life, who are afraid of death. There are many people who see life as nothing but one black cloud event after another. In fact, I've often, as I teach young pastors, I will say, you know, in every church you've got black cloud people. What do I mean by that? Well, they just always seem to carry around trouble. And it just comes and comes and comes. And they're often uh, the unfortunate victims of terrible things that have happened. And they just seem to keep on happening. Well, some people just see life as one dark cloud after another, but the prospect of death is fearful, frightful. It is something to be avoided at all costs. And so there are many people who believe that. But for those of us who are born again, those of us who have tasted the heavenly gift of God's grace, we ought not see life and death that way. And our missions ought to be motivated by our belief that life is great But going to be with Jesus is even greater. 
We ought to want to share that news with everybody with whom we come in contact so they might be able to taste that heavenly gift. In fact, Paul talks about that here in very personal and powerful ways. He talks about that reality in which he lives of being caught between two worlds. And it's not bad and worse. It's great and greater. And he's caught between these two realities. And I want us to recognize these this morning. Now, I will tell you, as he wrote this passage, he was in prison. And so for Paul, he knew that he could live or die there. He could be found not guilty and be released. He could be found guilty and be executed. So here is a man who is living on the edge. Here is a man who is living not knowing what tomorrow might bring. Reality is none of us really know what tomorrow might bring. We see here a powerful passage about living in such a way that it is full of Christ and so that dying is experiencing even a greater gain. So for us, life ought never be the lesser of two evils as it is for some. But like the Apostle Paul, we ought to see it as the choice of two glories, one great and one even greater. So first, we see for the believer, to live is to experience Christ. To live is to experience Christ. That's what he says there in verse 21. For me, to live is Christ. Now, you may know a little of the biography of Paul. And you may know that he was born and came from a place called Tarsus. But I would correct you today and say, While he may have been physically born in Tarsus or somewhere thereabouts, his life began on the road to Damascus. His real life began on the road to Damascus because it was there that he found Christ and he was changed forevermore. I love to irritate parents. Now, I appreciate holding your little baby girl because I do love children. I will tell you, I love children. I've gotten in trouble before in restaurants with strangers saying, can I hold your baby? and I'll, sometimes I'll offer money, and usually they take it and thrust that child in my arms real quickly. But I love children, and I love to get parents in trouble by saying to children, now children, you really ought to be having two birthdays. You ought to get two presents, not one. You ought to be getting one on the day you were born, but you also ought to get one on the day you were born again. You see, that's really when life begins. Okay, children, tell your mamas and daddies, I ought to be getting two birthday parties out of this deal. The preacher said so. Well, Paul believed that his life began when he came to experience Christ. Oh, my friends, it was the beginning of his life. And for Christ to be his Lord was the continuing of his life. And he looked forward to that day when the end of his life would usher him into the nearer presence of the Lord himself. So I ask you this morning, my friends, is Jesus all the world to you? Is he the beginning of your life? Can you point to Him as the real meaning of your life? You heard your pastor quote my long, pompous title a while ago. And I've had people ask me about that. And, you know, and they'll ask, uh, do I get obsessed with that job because it's pretty big? And I say, you know what? No, I don't. You know why? Because when I go home at night, I can rest my head and know this job is what I do. It's not who I am. It is what I do. It is not who I am. Who am I? I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Who am I? I'm a minister of the gospel. What I do is whatever, whatever, whatever. But I 
am a follower of Christ. He is what I live for. Is Jesus all the world to you? Is living for you? The experiencing of Christ? Is living for you Christ Himself? Do you find your freedom and your identity in Him? Years ago, a at that time, contemporary Christian singer named Scott Wesley Brown was visiting friends in, in East Berlin. At that time, that was a communist area. You know that in 89, the wall fell and now it's all free. <clears throat> and I w- I've been there in East Germany. I haven't been to East Berlin, but I've been in Germany where the wall once stood. He was able to visit these friends. And as the day drew to a close, his time, he had to get back into West Berlin to go back to freedom uh, and they had to cross through what is called Checkpoint Charlie to get back into West Berlin and as he was getting ready to leave and walk through the gate he said to his East Berlin friends I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I feel so terrible that I'm going into freedom and leaving you here wise believers they looked at him and said are you really free over there? Are you really free over there? You see, freedom is found in Christ, not in some kind of political system. Is Jesus all the world to you? Do you find your identity and your freedom in Him? You see, for Paul to live was Christ. But he went on to say, didn't he, for the believer, death is a grand promotion. For Paul, death was only an entrance into a greater reality. And he wanted to be nearer to the Lord. So he said in the latter part of that verse, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Now you need to know that word in the Greek text is used. It was a banking word and it meant principle and interest. So when I die, I'm going to get the good stuff, but I'm going to get even more. I'm going to get principle and I'm going to get interest. He really was saying, I'm going to have more of Christ then than I do now. And what I have now is absolutely wonderful. But what I'm going to have then will be even better. So Paul was confident that death would be an increase and a progression. He would enjoy the real value of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Oh, my friends. He wanted to depart. He wanted to go on and be with the Lord. And so he said in verse 23, he said, I am pressured by both. I desire to depart. And that word is used in the Greek text in several ways. It means to take down one's tent to move on. It means to pull up the stakes and go on. It also can be used as a political term to be set free. I am set free from the jail of this life. It can also mean in a sailor's term to set sail and go on off. So he was saying, I desire to depart. I want to take up the stakes of my tent. I want to get on my ship and I want to be set free. That's what I would rather do. I remember talking with a young lady not too many months ago. I was doing an interim pastorate in another place. And and, uh, she was trying to get her husband to understand some spiritual realities. He was a little hard-headed. Sometimes men are that way, aren't they, ladies? Amen? Amen. You you don't have to say amen, but I know you want to. Well, she was just talking about her love for the Lord so much, he finally looked at her and said, Do you have a death wish? 
She said, yeah, I do. I'm not going to do anything to expedite the process, but yes, I want to be with my Lord, and yes, I look forward to dying. Now, that's something people don't understand in this world. They don't understand it at all. You see, we do everything we can to postpone it. Everything in medicine is designed to prohibit death, to prolong life, to keep us from going on to the other side. But the believer knows that while we may love being with our family and our friends and we love our environment in many ways, we know that there ought to be that deep desire to depart. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Paul knew that which was to come was even better. And I desire, he says, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. I have a lot of people ask me, what do you think it's going to be like there? I don't know. I don't know. I just know Jesus is there. I was on the airplane not too long ago. Now I'm on the airplane a lot. I'll be going this week to West Virginia. Pray for me. But anyway, I travel a lot. And I remember a few years ago, I was flying into a small city in Washington, yes, Washington State, called Pasco. And then I had to go to a, somewhere else to speak for a state convention meeting. And, and uh, as we were flying in, it was in a small plane, which is lovely, and in a small airport. And at, we were probably less than 100 feet from the, air, from the ground when the pilot aborted the landing and took off again. Apparently some fog had come up off the Columbia River and had obscured the runway to the extent the pilot felt nervous, so he just took off again and went to a different runway and we landed safely. But if you've ever done that, I will just tell you it is an experience because the plane is basically coming in without power, and when the pilot decides to, to stop that, he puts full power back to the engines, and the plane shakes horribly. And the man beside of me freaked out. He had, as we say down south, he had a spell. Well, we finally got up, leveled out, plane calmed down, you know. And he looks over and he said, I'm a such and such level medallion flyer. And he said, I've flown whatever, whatever. And that scared the life out of me. And I said, obviously, isn't he? He looked at me and he said, how could you be so calm? You know what I said to him? I said, sir. Now, many of you don't know I have a daughter that's waiting on me in heaven. But I said to him, sir, I have a Savior and a daughter I want to see very badly. And if the Lord decided that was my moment to come home, I'm ready. He looked at me like I'd lost my ever-loving mind. But you see, I'm like Paul. For to depart would be far better. I'm not going to do anything to expedite the process. I'm not going to do anything stupid. But I will tell you that going to be with the Lord is going to be a glorious experience. It will be both a union with our Lord and a reunion with those who have gone before. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Can you say those words out loud with me right now? To live is Christ. To die is gain. But Paul had one last thing to say. There's a reason I need to stay. There's a reason that God has not called me home. What is that reason? He says there, though we are caught between two worlds, we are here for a purpose. He says in verse 23, I'm pressured by both. 
I'm pressured. I have a desire to depart, which is far better. But verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. In fact, many scholars will point out the broken construction that is found in this verse. As if Paul was in great, deep emotion. As he is struggling emotionally. And that's what it really was. He pictures himself as in a rocky place, kind of between two cliffs. He's caught between the two and he wants to go and see the Lord, but he wants to stay for the sake of his friends. And he finally comes down to the conclusion, God's in charge. And as long as I'm here, I must be here for a reason. Oh, my friends, we too should feel that tension. We too should recognize that deep, deep tension. We are caught between two worlds. And it's not between the piranha and the crocodiles. It's between glory and glory. It's between glory and glory. Oh, my friends, there's a reason God has us where He has us. I was once witnessing to a young girl in, in um, Texas somewhere. And I remember her telling me, I don't believe I'm here for a reason. I think I'm an accident. Using my southernism, I said, honey, child, don't you ever say that again. You see, the Bible says God has you where he has you for a reason. He has plans for you. Plans for you. Don't you ever forget that. I was on the airplane the other day. Did I tell you I fly some? I was between Detroit and Des Moines. <laughs> Detroit, Michigan, and Des Moines, Iowa. And I sat down beside a young woman, and at my age, all women are younger than me. But anyway, she was maybe in her 40s. I don't know. I'm not even going to go there. I never ask. You don't ever ask that, man. That's stupid to even ask such a question. But anyway, we began the obligatory small talk, and I found out quickly she did not know the Lord. But a nice person. I liked her. Named Aaron. You need to pray for Aaron. By the way, before we landed, Aaron said, Frank said, you go to all these places, you speak to these churches, you speak to these people, these groups. What's the one thing you want them to hear? I thought, well, that's a good question, Eric. I said, honey, here's what it is. I want people to know. I'm not in this business to make people better Baptists. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I want them to have a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. And Aaron, that's what I want for you. To have a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. Oh, my friends, Paul realized the reason he was to remain was to help people in that love relationship with the Lord Jesus. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But there's a reason. I need to stay here. And that is to do what God has called me to do. And you see, that's where the heart of missions is. We're here on this earth that we might share the good news of Christ. And that's what missions is. That's what evangelism is. It is to take that message that we are to have a love relationship with Christ. It is a love relationship that we want to share with those around us. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what missions is supposed to be all about. So I encourage you today to recognize you are here for a reason. Paul recognized it. And we should as well. I ask you as Jesus all the world to you. One writer once said, in fact it was George W. Truett, a man that I love dearly, a pastor of yesteryear, after whom is kind of sort of named my youngest grandson, Truett. 
He said, you can find fault with Moses. You can find fault with David and Paul. You can put your finger down the history of of godly people and you'll find fault with Job. You'll find fault with Abram, with Isaiah. You'll find fault with Paul. You'll find fault with Barnabas. You can put your finger on a fault of all men and women scripturally. But Christ alone stands faultless. Christ alone stands spotless. Christ alone stands without sin. As I was talking with Erin, she relayed her disappointment at believers she had known. I said, Erin, you keep looking at people, you're always going to find trouble. I will disappoint you, Erin, but my Lord Jesus will never let you down. How do you feel about Jesus today? You see all the world to you? I pray your answer is yes. I pray we'll be like the Apostle Paul who can say with all authenticity for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. But for me to remain is more necessary for you all. That's the reason for Christmas. That's the reason for missions. Let's pray together, please. Father God, in Jesus' name we come. I thank you so much for this time, Lord, with your people here. I pray, Lord God, right now that you would be the Lord of this moment as you are the Lord of this church. Father, right now I pray that we would do business with you. That as you've called us to a love relationship with you, that we would respond today with ever-deepening commitment, with ever-increasing submission. Father, you are the Lord of this church. Be the Lord of every person in this place now, every man, woman, boy, and girl. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.